It's good to be here again tonight and to have a part in this series of meetings. I, uh, not to the point yet that I know who's visitors and who's regular, but anyway, we're glad that all of you here, those, those of you who may be visiting, we're glad that you're here as well. But I know that Larson Plyler's not a regular, he's a visitor. Uh, glad to see Larson. Uh, our families are kind of interwoven back several, for a number of years. have known them for years and they uh, come from a good family. And uh, he, he's not even the exception. <laughs> but we're, we're just glad to see you, uh, Larson. Uh, in this series, we are talking about Jesus. Uh, talking about the various aspects of his work and uh, how he's portrayed in the scriptures. And uh, tonight, we're going to look at Jesus as, <coughs> excuse me, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, rather, beg your pardon, chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 to begin with. Which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then in Revelation, the 17th chapter and verse 14, uh, basically the same uh, uh, words are used to depict uh, him as the Lamb of God. It says in verse 14 of uh, Revelation 17, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For, he says, He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. There is a, was an old song that was sung uh, mostly with so-called gospel quartets back uh, several years ago. But it said something about he's got the whole world in his hands, talking about Jesus and Christ having the whole world in his hands. That's something that is easy to forget if we're not careful. We seem to just kind of take it for granted. And we, in the time of fear, uh, sometimes we get so carried away with our emotions and our fear that we forget the danger is so great that we forget, wait a minute, he does have the whole world in his hands. Wait a minute, he is king of kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is above everything. And the same thing during the time of peace. Everything going smoothly. Uh, and uh, we, if we're not careful, we just let it slip by us, take it for granted that Jesus is uh, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Uh, it, prosperity. Uh, sometimes I believe is more so if, uh, than even in a period which uh, we're not so prosperous. It's easy for us to not depend upon the Lord and to feel like we've got what we need and we can make it with what we've got and we really don't need uh, his oversight. But that, uh, true is, that also is not true. We need to understand that Jesus has universal authority in this dispensation. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, there's a passage that I think most of us are familiar with. It's Jesus, uh, just before giving the apostles the great commission to go uh, and make disciples of all nations or to teach all nations. He says in the 18th verse of uh, verse 28, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Now that's all there is. All authority given me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus is not just 
uh, one who has authority over his spiritual kingdom, which he does, and we'll show it later. But he has authority over the whole universe. He's, he's given all authority in heaven and in earth. Uh, that's in harmony with what was said in Ephesians chapter uh, 1, where he says in verse 19, And what is the exceeding, Ephesians 1, 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, which he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Now listen to this. Far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, uh, but also in that which is to come. Uh, some translations say not only in this world, but also that which is to come. Put all things under his feet and give him to be head over all things to the church. The word kingdom, uh, and he talks about the kingdom here. The word kingdom in relation to uh, the scriptures and the uh, reign of Christ is used in about three senses uh, in uh, the New Testament. Uh, first, it's used uh, really of his dominion or his power over the whole world. Uh, and of course, that is the whole world is under his uh, power, is under his authority. And the idea of a kingdom is the idea of rule and domain. And so one rules over his domain. And in the sense uh, that the whole world is under his authority. Some of it is under his authority involuntarily. A small part of it is under his authority voluntarily. That is, they have volunteered themselves to be under his authority. But uh, whether they realize or not, even if they have not volunteered to be under his authority, they are under that authority. And sometimes the uh, word kingdom has in mind that domain that is having to do with the world. One passage that stands out for me is uh, is in the explanation of the parable, parable of the sower, not the sower, but the tares in the same chapter of Matthew chapter 13. When he explains the uh, how that the enemy went and sowed the tares into the field and then he tells them to uh, uh, leave them alone, don't pull them up because you pull up the wheat with the tares, and to let it be until the angels come and reaps uh, the wheat and uh, not try to separate them now, but separate them in the world to come. And in that sense, he uses uh, the term kingdom. He talks about he'll gather out of his kingdom. He used the word kingdom of his whole domain over the whole world itself. I heard a young man speaking on this one time and uh, he talked about how this passage showed so vividly uh, how that uh, the Lord would gather out of his kingdom, that is, he would gather out uh, of his church, those that offend and so forth, and in the judgment. Well, that may be so, but that's not what this verse teaches. Uh, and also, I, I've heard it uh, been said on this particular passage, that when he, uh, uh, it shows that the uh, apostle, not the apostles, but the, the, uh, that the Lord in, in this was telling them and warning those who were in the church uh, how that they needed to straighten up because God was going to judge the church, the kingdom. That's all true, but not this passage teaches. This passage is going to tell us what he means by the kingdom, if you read the context. Notice in verse 37. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. Uh, and But the tares are the children of the wicked one. Now in that sense, where he talks, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, 
he is talking about the uh, his kingdom in the sense of uh, the church, those who have voluntarily submitted themselves to his authority. And the tares are the children of the world, of the wicked one in the world. But he goes on to say, and the enemy that sowed uh, them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. And therefore the tares are gathered and burned in fire. So shall be at the end of the world. And then it says, verse 41, And the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all the things of him and which do iniquity. He'll gather them out of his kingdom. But in this sense, the kingdom is the field, which is the world, which is his completely outer domain. I want to illustrate on the board what I'm uh, trying to say. We'll let that uh, be the, the kingdom when it's talking about of the world. That he has dominion over all that. Then here, this is the kingdom. Those who voluntarily submit are the church. And so you've really got a kingdom within a kingdom. You've got a domain within a domain. And you've got his headship over the church, over the spiritual kingdom, which is uh, made up of those who are Christians, which is made up of those who have accepted his rule. Then you've got that outer part of those who are still under his rule and his domain. They're in the world, but they have not yet accepted that fact, and thus they're not Christians. They're not part of that spiritual kingdom that had been prophesied by Isaiah and by Daniel and by others. Uh, and it's used in a third sense. Uh, in the future, the eternal kingdom, and of course we there's a number of passages along that way. So you have the kingdom uh, or the church are those who are voluntarily under that rule, who have submitted themselves to it, and uh, they have taken advantage of his grace uh, in order to make them set apart from the rest of those in the world and the rest of those who are still under his rule, under his dominion, and that will uh, one day they'll have to answer uh, to him because he has rule over them. Uh, Colossians 1.13 speaks of the ever uh, of who had delivered us from the power of darkness and had translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And it's used in that sense, those who have been added to the church or translated into the kingdom. Then the everlasting kingdom is mentioned, such passages as 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. The everlasting kingdom. So uh, tonight, we want to talk about two things, about his being king of kings and lord of lords. We want to notice, first of all, it involves Christ's rule over the world and over the kingdoms of men. And then secondly, it uh, will have to do with Christ's reign over the church, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of prophecy that uh, had been prophesied. Uh, backing up to the idea of he is ruling over the world, he has the world in his hands. He has it under control, that he can, under control that he uh, rules over the kingdoms of men. I think sometimes that we may, if we're not careful, think of God having created the world uh, back in the beginning. Then he wound it up, like kind of like a top. If you remember these old tops that you used to have, top with a string on it, and threw it out there and jerked it and let it start spinning and just let it alone to spin out. Well, the Lord hasn't done that. Uh, God hasn't done that. What God has done, he's created, but ever since he created, he has been the ruler uh, over it. He's been the controller of it. And he not only created, but he also sustains it by his power and by his rule. Uh, this expression, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, carries with it the idea of one who is a king or lord over other kings and their kingdoms and over other lords and their uh, domain. Uh, 
it was used in the Old Testament a few times, referring to some men, some powerful men, powerful rulers of the uh, uh, nations of the Old Testament. One, for instance, is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Babylon, if you notice in Ezekiel 26, uh, we'll find that expression in verse 7 of Nebuchadnezzar and talking of him and describing uh, him. Uh, he says, For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, and from the north, with horses and with chariots and with horsemen and with companies and much people. He would bring upon him Cyrus, upon Babylon, and upon Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as king of kings and lord of lords, or rather king of kings here. Well, king of kings just simply means the idea that he's over kingdoms. Notice, notice in the history there, the Babylonian Empire consisted of a number of domains, a number of uh, kingdoms. He was over Syria, he was over uh, Israel, and he's over Egypt and others. And they had their own kings, but they were puppet kings pretty much. And they were, you have Nebuchadnezzar is a king he has control over them. Well, that's the idea. The idea is one who is in control of kingdoms under him. Uh, Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia, is referred to in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 12. Uh, Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, a scribe uh, of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace, and at such time. That was the address that was given to the king of Persia. But he's referred to as the king of kings. Uh, and again, Persia was an empire and over various other domains. They captured and put uh, Babylon under their domain. They captured and they, uh, in doing that, they took over the Babylonian empire and all of those kings that were under Nebuchadnezzar became subject to Persia. And so they were king of kings and lord of lords. They, again, giving us an idea of what the expression entails, that it entails being a king over other kings, our lord over other lords or other dignitaries. In Deuteronomy uh, 10 and verse 17, uh, he uses the expression lord. Uh, he says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. <coughs> God of gods and Lord. And that idea that he is the God above, he's far above any of the heathen gods or the false gods. And he even to some degree they're under his control. And then not only that, but he is Lord of lords. He has a Lord over other dominions. The psalmist said in 136, Psalm and 3, Oh, give thanks to the Lord of, God, Lord of Lords, for his mercy endureth forever. So here Jesus is said to be King of kings and Lord of lords. And he, by doing that, he is uh, showing that he has authority that his Father has always had. But the Father has now, in this dispensation, has given it or delegated that unto him. And so he says again in Matthew 28, as we noticed a while ago, that uh, it's given to him a position where that he was over all uh, uh, things in heaven and in earth. But uh, the Ephesian letter in Ephesians 1 and verse 21, uh, speaking about Christ, uh, he says he's far above all principality and power and uh, 
might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but that which is the world to come. Uh, that position that he has as over all of these that Christ now has as the Son, uh, he is he has what, as I said, what his father had all along. If you go back to the Psalms, again to the 22nd Psalm and verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's, or as, uh, the, as the American Standard says, for the kingdom is Jehovah's, and he is the governor among the nations. The kingdom is God's. There you're talking about the Father. And that he also, he says of him, that he has, uh, he is the governor among the nations. Uh, in Daniel, the fourth chapter, the prophet Daniel said of, uh, along these same lines, uh, he tells uh, Nebuchadnezzar what's about to happen to him and that Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn a lesson. And the lesson he needed to learn basically was he, he wasn't the one who had all authority. That he was not, he was not the top gun in all of this. That he had to learn that he himself, though he would, would not volunteer to be, or may not have even recognized that he was, which it shows he didn't. But whether he recognized it or not, he was still under the domain and under the authority of the God of heaven. Uh, notice in verse 25 of Daniel 4, and they shall drive thee from men, and they uh, dwelling shall, and thy dwelling rather, shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven. And then he goes on to say, till thou know that the Most High ruleth, or rules in the uh, kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever his will. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're king of kings and lord of lords? Wait a minute. There's one that's over you, and he can take your kingdom away from you, and he can give it to somebody else. He has that authority. He has that power. And that's a lesson you've got to learn. And so Nebuchadnezzar had to learn it. He had to go out and do his grazing in the grass and learn that he was not, he, he wasn't calling the shots. That God of heaven was calling the shots and he could take his kingdom and do with it what he pleased. And he could push it aside and he could put one in his place. It's still under his authority. Uh, and he, uh, the Bible teaches that he uses nations to that end. He would take a nation that needed punishment, even needed to be destroyed. And he'd raise up a nation, not necessarily a righteous nation, but he'd raise up a nation to punish that nation. And then when he got through punishing that nation, he'd punish the nation that did the punishing because of his ungodliness. But who was in control? The Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Jehovah, even in, in those Old Testament days. In Isaiah 10, verse 5, Isaiah 10 and 5, a seer in the rod of mine anger, and the staff in her, uh, their hands is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to uh, take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit, he meaneth not so. He says, I'm going to, I, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take this fellow, take this uh, ruler, uh, the Assyrian, and I'm going to take him, and I'm going to get him to do my work for me. He's going to punish this nation. Uh, he, he doesn't intend to. He doesn't think he's doing God's will. What he thinks he's doing, he just thinks he's going out and adding some more territory. He just thinks that he's uh, going out here in his heart, uh, he was to, to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. He thought he'd uh, destroy other nations 
and bring other nations <coughs> under subjection to him. That's what his purpose is. But God could use that, and he did use it. And then in verse 12 it says, And it shall come to pass that when the Lord has performed the whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. The man who did the destroying would be destroyed. The man who did the punishment for the Lord would be punished because the Lord could manage through his problems. He could manage the nations and he would use them to destroy other nations. When a, a nation had reached, uh, reached the fullness of its iniquity and needed to be destroyed, God didn't necessarily every time rain down uh, fire and brimstone like he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes he would raise up another nation of a ruthless nation that was fitted for the job and let them go in and punish that nation whose iniquity was full and then when they punished that nation then he would turn around and raise up another nation and punish the one who did the punishing so that he too would get uh, what he needed uh, for his iniquity. Uh, and all of it is because he's Lord of Lords. He's in control. He's in control of it all. So we've got to remember in times when it's the scary times in this world and when even in the church, just remember people that scare us are not in control. <coughs> the governments that scare us are not in control. God is in control. He can use those nations, does use those nations, but eventually he wins out. And eventually he's the one who has the control of, of all of it. Uh, and he may control it kind of behind the scenes. The world uh, plays out as a, like, kind of like a, a puppet uh, show sometimes. You've got the uh, stage and you see the actors and what they're doing, but you don't always see the one who's pulling the strings behind the scene. Uh, that's what we need to see. We need to see the one that's pulling the strings behind the scene, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Uh, and sometimes things may seem to be out of control, but they're not. And we sometimes we think we have very little control, but the Lord is Lord of Lords. He controls it all. Uh, even the silver powers that be, they are granted what the power they have from God. If you remember when uh, Jesus was being tried uh, and was before Pilate, the uh, Roman uh, governor, and in talking with him, uh, he's, uh, the governor asked Jesus, says, don't, paraphrasing of course, don't you know that I have the power to put you to death? Don't you, I've got the power to crucify you? Or I can release you? Well, then Jesus reminded him who really had the power. Then Jesus said to him in verse 11 of John 19, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me up unto thee has the greater sin. You, Pilate, you would not have any power if it did not come from above. If you weren't carrying out God's plan and God's purpose, you wouldn't have any power over it. You're working God's purpose. And that's working, that purpose was to crucify the Lord and make him a sacrifice for the sin of the world. And I might add this, that as a child of God, as a faithful Christian, we have some influence on the one who's the king and king and lord of lords as to what may come about. Notice in James chapter 5, James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. James 5, 16 through 18. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then he goes on to give us an illustration of how that God's providence had worked in the past in answer to prayer as an illustration of what prayer can do to the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Uh, he says, Elijah was a man of subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth for a space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven uh, gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Elijah's prayer influenced God to stop the rain, cause the drought. Then when time was for to be up, after three years, then Elijah goes back, petitions to God, and God says, okay. Paraphrased it. But he said, okay. He sent the rain. He sent by his providence. It wasn't particularly a miraculous rain that it ended rained out of the clear sky. But if you read the original account of it, a little cloud like a hand came up over the Mediterranean Sea. And it came up and got built up to a bigger cloud to what we'd call a storm. And then it dumped the rain on them. Not necessarily a miracle. It was a providential work of God's hand using nature to fulfill his uh, <coughs> will and to answer the prayer of Elijah. Uh, so, 1 Timothy 2, 2, for kings, we're to pray for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. Will it work? Sure it will. When things are going rough, a lot of times folks say, well, it's kind of bad. We can't do anything else. Let's, let's just pray about it. We need to start praying before it gets rough. And then pray while it's rough. And to recognize that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It influences God as to what he does toward mankind. But he's, he's the one in control. He's the one who hears the prayer. He's who answers the prayer. And he chooses the means by which he answers it. So he's king of kings and lord of lords. But let's turn our attention now to his rule over the church, which is his spiritual kingdom. Uh, we've already noticed in Ephesians chapter 1 where he's uh, had been put above all principalities and powers and so forth in the heavenly places. In 22 of Ephesians 1, and it put all things under his feet and gave him head to be, uh, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He's uh, head over all things to the church. Thus he is a king over his spiritual kingdom. He is the king of kings and lord of lords in that he is over the secular kingdoms of this world. But in a special way, now he's head over the spiritual kingdom. That spiritual kingdom is made up of people, made up of all who have submitted themselves to the rule of Christ. And in submitting themselves to the rule of Christ, they obeyed the gospel of Christ, put on Christ, and they became a citizen in the spiritual kingdom as well as a member in the church. Um, Daniel prophesied in Daniel 2 and verse 44 that in answer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream that in the days of the fourth kingdom after Nebuchadnezzar uh, that there would, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom which would never be destroyed. And uh, Babylon is identified as the first of the kingdoms, then the Medo-Persians and the Greeks, and then the Romans. Uh, then the spiritual kingdom came into being in the first century. Uh, Jesus came. He lived among men. He died, was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father on high, sent back the Holy Spirit as he promised on the, day, uh, on the apostles, and on the day of Pentecost, it's declared 
that he's on his throne, on David's throne, ruling over the spiritual kingdom. Not only is he ruling over the world at large in that uh, they're subject to him uh, involuntarily, but he now he's rules over the spiritual kingdom in that they have uh, themselves volunteered to place themselves under his rule and over, uh, over his domain. Uh, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36, showing there's a spiritual kingdom, telling Pilate, Pilate, Pilate he told Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, uh, then would my servants fight. But he it says, it's, since it's not of this world, uh, then that's a different story. But anyway, uh, it's the um, same as the church in that sense. Uh, when he said that he'd build his church after he came to the world, uh, he said, Upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Uh, then in verse 19, he says to Peter, I give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, using church and kingdom interchangeably. That kingdom would be the, that spiritual kingdom of over which he is head. Uh, it's the same thing as to say uh, they are added to the church or they're added to the kingdom. In Colossians 1, 13, uh, they were said they were being translated into the kingdom of his dear son. In Acts 2, 47 says those that were saved were added to the church. Uh, so you have a spiritual kingdom made up of those who've obeyed the gospel of Christ, who submitted themselves to his rule and put themselves under his authority and as it were, pledged to obey him in all things whatsoever he commanded them, even unto the end of the world. Part of making the disciple was to make disciples of all nations. You baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you also teach them in addition to that, you teach them that they are to observe all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded. They, as it were, they pledge themselves to obey everything God has said. And of course, if they fall short of it, the mercy of God is available. The blood of God is available by which they can uh, get forgiveness. So he was to rule over the house that was prophesied in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, where it says in uh, Isaiah 2, 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be uh, established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Uh, the picture of a mountain and hills uh, in prophecy has to do with authority and power. So uh, there was a setting up of the mountain of the Lord's house, that is of his rule, uh, the rule of the Lord over his mountain, over the mountain of the Lord's house, they are above the hills. That would be the lesser authorities and lesser uh, powers. And uh, he would be exalted above the hills and all nations would flow unto it. And many would, people would come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord's house and so on. Then uh, he's at, uh, at the right hand ruling over that spiritual kingdom. So it's, exalt, as I said, exalted above every other rule. And the and his kingdom, or his rule, is over all other rules. And he says it's to be set up in the last days. And that doesn't leave any guessing as to when those last days were. Because when the first uh, gospel sermon that Peter preached uh, after the day of Pentecost was in Acts chapter 2. And in that, he quoted from Joel uh, in the Old Testament where Joel says uh, that this shall come to pass that in the last days uh, saith God I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh when they receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost he says this is the last days the spirit was poured out upon all flesh meaning all Jew and Gentile alike and so this was the last days this was the establishment of it having to do with the last dispensation of time. Prior to that, there had been the patriarchal era, and then there was the uh, mosaical, or the age of the law, the law of Moses, 
And now you've got the last of the three, the final one of the three dispensations, uh, where out he would pour his, out his spirit upon all flesh. And he talks about some prophesying and others. The, that poured out, I believe, included not only the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, but all that resulted from that baptism on that day. That is, the apostles later laying their hands on people and they received uh, miraculous power and uh, but were not able to pass it on to others. But uh, others did prophesy and others did uh, uh, carry the gospel by the words of the apostles. But it was poured out upon all flesh, Jew and Gentile. You find the uh, some uh, receive that pouring out, like the two cases of baptism is poured out on uh, the Jews on Pentecost, the house of Cornelius in Acts 10, and then upon those whom they laid their hands received a miraculous power. And that included even some among the Gentiles as they go among those churches and impart those spiritual gifts. Paul wrote to the church at uh, Rome that he wanted to come to them that he might impart unto them some spiritual gift. And so you've got the Spirit being poured out as were upon all flesh. But again, this is his spiritual kingdom that he is over. And that he extends him to be the head over all things to the church, not just some things, everything. The apostles were his ambassadors uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Uh, they were ambassadors of Christ, sent out, inspired to teach what Christ wanted taught. He equipped them to teach that by giving them the Holy Spirit in miraculous fashion. And then he said of the, those apostles that uh, in Matthew 18 and 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. One translation says, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. That which God bound in heaven, he gave it to those apostles, and through their teaching, they bound it upon earth. And it's bound upon us today, the apostolic teaching that came through uh, these inspired men. So the Word was the um, instrument of rule uh, that they would have in this last days. So they are exalted above all other rule, above all other uh, powers. And in um, John chapter 15 and ver uh, 26, says, but when the Comforter is come, talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, whom I will send to you my Father, from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify me, and ye also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit came to them, and they went forth with the Word. Uh, he prayed for, it says in John seventeen twenty, neither pray I for these alone, that is, for his apostles alone. But he says, but for them which shall believe on me through their word. That, that makes us a part of it. He says, I don't just pray for these apostles alone, but I also pray for those who believe on me through their word. And every believer today is a believer, if he's a true believer is a believer because of the apostolic <laughs> word. We have it written in scripture. The uh, apostles spoke it orally and wrote it first. Then after they were gone, their writings were left. And that's what makes up our New Testament, uh, the, uh, the writings of the apostles. And so our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that word that he talks about is the uh, apostolic word or the New Testament word and Jesus is continuing to rule over the world today through the providence of God as a whole but he is ruling over the church the spiritual kingdom 
head over the church. He's doing that in a very special way in that we have a relationship with him whereby that we can call uh, God the Father and we can call him our Savior. And so we raise the question then, what was established on Pentecost? Somebody says, well, the church. Well, that's true. The church was established. But also, we need to remember that Christ's rule was established. And those who submitted that rule, they're the ones that make up the church. I think sometimes people have an idea, kind of like that the Lord set up something, kind of like a little, little red wagon back there in the uh, first century when he uh, established the church. And then he told everybody jumped on the wagon uh, that they could, uh, they could ride the hip on it. And people kind of look at it that way as long as they can read about the church that they're a member of in the scriptures and they're in, quote, unquote, that church, then they've got a free ride into heaven. That's not what it's all about. What it's all about is what constitutes the church are, the, are those, it's not a vehicle that we jump on to go to heaven. Uh, it's a people that we've come a part of who have submitted themselves <coughs> to the will of God who has submitted themselves to the rule of God. And that rule was established on the day of Pentecost. Uh, when the Holy Spirit was sent, and Peter said on the day of Pentecost that in preaching Christ, he said he descended back to heaven, sat on the right hand of the Father, on the throne of David, sitting there as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's at the right hand of God on high, ruling. And so that rule was established. It had been promised to the Son. That rule is now established and verified with him sitting on David's throne in heaven, ruling over his people. As long as we submit to that rule, we will be in the church that was established. We will be a part of that people that are saved. We'll be submissive in every respect to His will. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's the head of the church. He's the one who gives directions. We receive the uh, benefits of it. And we receive the uh, instructions. And really, our loyalty is to the Lord. Not the church per se, but we're our loyalty is to the Lord. But the church, the true church, the Bible speaks of, are those people who are loyal to the Lord and who serve His purposes and serve His will. They make up the church of the New Testament, and uh, they recognize Him, not just in name, but in deed, recognize Him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's in control. And he controls our lives, and he's one who tells us how to live and how do we serve him uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And people in times past, and I've maybe now too, but people sometimes have gotten so uh, loyal to the church, of which they're a member, or the congregation, that no matter what the church does, they're going to be loyal to the church. Well, you've got up at the top here, you, you've got uh, the will of God. Uh, so, and those who are on that line, that is, they've submitted themselves to the uh, will of God, they make up the church. Now, uh, you, if you put a law to the, to the will of God, though, and you go out here a little ways and the, that congregation or that uh, group of that church bears off a little and then it gets to be more and more. Those who are loyal to the Lord will stay here. They will stay with the Lord, whatever he says. But those who are loyal to the church, however the church goes, they go. So when it brings in innovations, when it brings in uh, false teaching or whatever, they're, gonna, they're still going to be with the church. 
they're going to stay there no matter what they do, how they do it, or whatever, because they are loyal to that congregation rather than being loyal to the Lord. And many were led astray when church began to deviate from the law, the law of the Lord. They followed the church rather than the Lord. Had they followed the church, they would still have been the Lord's church. They'd still have been uh, the uh, church that is Christ, Christ's church. They'd still have been a part of it as long as they were loyal to Him. But when their loyalty switched and transferred to the church, they went however the church went, even if the church left the Lord, they'd still be with it. And uh, it's important that we recognize that the Lord, Jesus Christ, is in this dispensation. He's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So if we submit to that rule, we'll be blessed eternally. He has the power to save us. He will save us. Unto him that's able to keep you from falling, he says. And also, if we stay loyal to him, he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. The only thing that we can do to separate us, to be separated from him is to cease to do his will and to follow his teaching and be what he would have us to be, both individually and collectively. So if we can elect or reject his rule, we uh, are not, will not be a part of that kingdom over which he is the savior, over which he is the ruler. Uh, but uh, we will still be subject to him when we face him in judgment. We will be still under his control in that he has control of all and he can, will judge us as a righteous judge and give us uh, righteous judgment in that last day. You may be here tonight, not a Christian. We would urge you to become one, uh, but recognize that when you become a Christian, that what you're doing, that you're submitting your life, submitting your will to the one who has control of everything. You're submitted to the Lord of Lords. You're submitted to the uh, King of Kings. Nothing else can be your Lord. Nothing else can be your King. Only the God of heaven through his Son, Jesus Christ, can be that. And when you do that, and you stay in uh, subjection to his will, doing his will, as long as you do that, you'll be a part of his kingdom, his spiritual kingdom, that he's promised to deliver up to the Father in the uh, last day, and uh, he becomes with the Father all in all. And that involves, of course, you're confessing the good name of Christ if you're a believer, repent of your sins, and been baptized into Christ, raised to be a walk in the news of life with the idea that once you've done that, that you're going to observe all things whatsoever he's commanded the very best of your ability. If you accept the Lord's invitation, won't you come while you stand, while you sing?